Welcome to the Lazy Pod Podcast. It's the Lazy Pod Podcast, where we recap every single episode. We'll go behind the scenes and talk about how the series began, and interview cast and crew members to find out what they're up to now. This is the 20th anniversary of the first broadcast of Lazy Town, so let's celebrate Sporticus, Stephanie, Robbie Rotten, and all their friends from Lazy Town. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Lazy Pod Podcast. Welcome to the Lazy Pod Podcast. And as promised, we've got special guests, including today's very special guest, Mark Zaslov, who was one of the chief architects of the stories, tales, characters, funny dialogue, and adventures of Lazy Town for many, many years. Welcome, Mark. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Good to be here. Between the two of us, I think uh, we crafted uh, the majority of the scripts, maybe 95% of them. And for true fans, they'll definitely recognize your name and they'll understand, um, they'll know the work that you did. And uh, But I wanted to get into a little bit of your background before we get into Lazy Town. Uh, and so I'm, I'm aware of the fact that your dad, Alan, was a uh, big, big name in the animation industry. Uh, could you just talk about him for a second? Yeah, sure. Um... My father was an animator and director and producer, but he was also a fine artist at the same time. He was head of uh, drawing at Otis Art Institute. So he started off, I think it was Warner's when he was 15. He lived across the way and he worked with all those guys. He was cleaning, you know, the paintbrush. You know, I mean, he was doing all the little things. And then yeah. he was taken under the wing by a number of people. Eventually he went to UPA. And that's where he first started directing uh, in the 50s. And uh, the head of UPA. Yeah. Is that the uh, Mr. Magoo studio? Yeah, it's Mr. Magoo, Gerald McBoing Boing, stuff like that. And they were very avant-garde at the time. And that was great with my dad's aesthetics, being a fine artist and stuff. And then he went on. He's worked pretty much everywhere. And he'd done Smurfs and uh, he ended up at Disney. When I was at Disney, I actually had two months seniority. So I'd always say it was reverse nepotism. And he was a producer director there. And I was a, a producer story editor at the time. So that we actually didn't work together. Uh, you, you were able to see, uh, have this sort of invade your brainstem uh, when you were a young kid, the animation industry. Was that cool for you? Yeah. Animators were drunk guys on my living room floor. So they were like, you know, I, I knew people, but I didn't think much of it one way or the other. So it was kind of like, oh, yeah, there's my dad's friends. You know, now now I hear people and they're like, well, what about so-and-so? It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember him. He likes scotch. And, you know, what about so-and-so? It's like, oh, man, I remember a time when, you know, he, he was like singing, you know, <laughs> something rather. So it was like all these people were just, you know, buddies of my dad. And, and so uh, but I don't recall ever really visiting him at work because he he did a lot of his animation at our house. He had a studio mm -hmm. built there. Mm -hmm. And so I'd come in and, you know, finger paint cells and stuff like that. And, so he uh, actually worked on the uh, individual, the cells, the one at a time sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. He was a, he was a lead animator as well as a director and stuff. So yeah, he had the light board, the light table at home and, you know, he had all the sheets and he'd be doing sheets and doing animation. And, you know, I remember, gosh, various things uh, that he'd be working on, but they're all kind of a blur, you know, they all kind of go together. Was that something that you understood as a kid that, oh, this is how you build an animated scene? It's 
incremental artwork, one small step at a time, and then it's filmed, and then it looks like motion, those kinds of things. Was that yeah, I because I, I was allowed to do it. I mean, it was like free paper, free pencils, free light board. I can't draw. My dad, you know, obviously I wasn't going to go up against him. I wrote. Um, but but I'd say I had a great, you know, a worm crawling. You know, I could, you know, do dinosaurs. That was about it. But yeah, I could animate as a kid because I had all the stuff. Did that interest you on a storytelling level? Did you, were you like, ah, this is, you know, this is how the stories get put together. Was that impactful for you? Nah, not, none at all. It was always books and movies for me. And uh, we were all creative people. Uh, one of my sisters is a opera singer, classical singer. Uh, mm. Her son's a cellist. Uh, my older sister, you know, being firstborn wasn't into it, but now she's a professional photographer, you know, so it's like, that was just one of the outlets we have. And it was just kind of part and parcel, which I was very fortunate about, you know, I know a lot of people don't get that kind of support and here it wasn't so much support as just a way of life. Mm, uh, yeah. But I did talk, yeah. a, a, I talked aesthetics a lot with my father uh -huh. from when I was in elementary school and what it meant to be an artist, you know, a professional artist. Uh -huh. So you sort of come from a showbiz family. Yep. Uh, I'm third generation. My kid wants to be fourth generation. Uh, Cole, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, seeing Cole up in Iceland when we were working on Lazy Town. He was just a little fella then. Oh, yeah. He's a little bigger. But <laughs> uh, yeah, everybody was very nice to him up there. That was that was a good time for him. So at some point when you were a kid, you turned your attention toward magic oh, uh, as a magician. Uh, and uh, well, I mean, you were one of the youngest uh, magicians ever to be allowed into the magic house in Los Angeles, right? You were a member at yeah. a age? I was a third youngest member of the magic castle. They had a young magicians program for under 18s and you had to audition and do all that stuff. In hindsight, I should have learned guitar or bass my life would have been way better but it was magic so uh <laughs> well it's all sort of the same thematic <laughs> thing i mean you became involved with you you became interested in astrophysics at what age uh fourth grade i was really into astronomy and had a little telescope and my dad got me a bigger one a couple years later and i had older friends who were into it so mm -hmm. doing astronomy was just something i did in elementary school and then as a teenager. Uh, and then I went to Berkeley to study. Well, I wanted to study physics. And then it turned out that the astronomy department, because I didn't think about astronomy at the time, uh, they drank beer every Friday at Laval's. And so it was like, well, I'm going to change from physics to astrophysics. It's basically the same thing, but nicer people. Uh -huh. And uh, ended up ended up in the astro astronomy department. I remembered uh, one time you you went up to the uh, whiteboard and you you wrote out an entire <laughs> equation of some kind. And it was very impressive. I don't know if it was a legit equation or not, but it sure looked legit to me. Well, I was doing uh, field space theory at the time when I was an undergrad. It was sort of my equation of what the universe looked like as a seven-dimensional superplanar. So that's what I was doing on the whiteboard. I remember that, actually. Uh -huh. uh, I think I explained it pretty well, too. Uh, well, I, too bad we didn't take a picture of it so we could <laughs> prove it. Uh, and when you were up in Iceland, of course, the winter months are dark all the time. 
So there were plenty of opportunities for you to go out and look at the stars. Did you do that? I don't remember you doing that. I don't, we were so busy. The thing I did do was the auroras. I mean, it was like, I don't know, we had a handful of Americans and there was some sort of daisy chain phone. Like if someone knew they were out there, you'd get a phone call, go outside quick, you know, from the Americans calling the Americans. And I remember seeing that, that was spectacular. That was so different from what I imagined. That was really amazing. Really otherworldly and and just gorgeous. Uh, So at some point in your development as a young man, you started writing short stories and magazine articles. Right. Is that true? Yeah. Um, What I was doing is I had a buddy. um, When we were 18, we started writing feature scripts every summer. He was at UCLA. I was at Berkeley. And we had done stand-up stuff during high school kind of things. And so we went, well, we don't want to be in front of the camera. We want to do the writing. And at the same time, I was writing short stories. And then at college, I wrote my first novel. And then I was expecting to have feature films pay for my novel writing career. But somehow that all got sidetracked. And (laughs) I got into animation and some other live action and never quite made billions of dollars off of movie scripts. Although I've done quite a few, but not more uh, foreign or in uh, I am the king of Hyderabad movies. I think I have like eight features I've done there, eight or nine. Wow. Okay, you are very prolific. I, I can attest to that. Prolific and, means fast. <laughs> and, and I mean, you you were you're a you're a good, strong, hard worker. I mean, from the minute you came to Iceland, I think you were you just started contributing and kicking out page count and and really really made a difference to the production for sure. But you didn't start in Lazy Town. You started way, way back in the uh, 80s? Mid-80s at Hanna-Barbera. And that's the only time my dad sort of helped me. Like, I was getting optioned in live action. And the producers, if you know movies, it's like the producer can wake up one morning and the entire movie will change because their copy was wrong. Or they'll break up with someone and now suddenly you have a new character in your movie that you know is a villain that's what's happening to me and my buddy with my writing partner and so i wasn't making any real money it was like i need to make money and it's like oh animation i can do that how hard is that (laughs) so uh, my dad was in hanna barbera and the only thing he did he said go over and talk to jeff siegel and kelly ward they were doing something called GoBots at the time they said just go over say hi and that was it. I mean, they knew my last name. They knew my dad, but it wasn't like particularly favors. And Jeff kind of went, well, can you write? And I go, I got feature film stuff. Well, let me see one. So he looks at a couple of pages. And go, okay, you can write. Come over some premises and let's see what you do. And the next thing I was writing on, you know, GoBots. And, and I mean, uh, that was just the beginning of dozens of uh, dozens of scripts that you've written for. You, you did uh, Johnny Quest. DuckTales, uh, Woody Woodpecker, Pink Panther, all the big uh, iconic brands and IPs. You've had your fingers in Bob the Builder and uh, and then Maniac McGee, which was uh, quite a new kind of project for you. Well, it was just, it was live action. It wasn't particularly new. I've been doing live action still. It's just, I was doing most the animation and I am this weird thing. I am a terrible networker. I like to know one person at a given time in the universe. 
And I happened to know one person who liked this book. And so I thought, okay, I'll give it a read. And then I knew one person who was at Nickelodeon who introduced me to one person. And then I got a buddy who introduced me to Michael Nolan, who was a producer on like um, Mr. Holland's Opus Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And so he came in and then, oh, and my buddy optioned the book for like nothing, you know, because he happened to, it was just one of those strings. And the next thing you know, we were doing uh, Maniac McGee. It was the first theatrical length live action for Nickelodeon, mm-hmm. I think at the time. Mm-hmm. And then uh, of course you were the uh, key part of creating Bump in the Night. I was story editor and co-producer. The creators were, were Kim Pontek and David Blyman. But they, I was thrown in by ABC at the time, and uh, and Ken is Ken and his wife Susan are actually odd parents for my son, so we became good friends because of that. Yes, and uh, at some point along the way, you won yourself two Emmy awards. Yeah, uh, that was for New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Um, that was my Babe Ruth moment. I think it was Babe Ruth who pointed to the was, was that Garrig or Ruth? Babe. It was Ruth. Yeah, I can, I think the best thing you can do, like the most, all right, I'm badass, is when you point your shot and do it. Not like when you point your shot in seven at-bats later you do it. It's like, all right, I'm doing it. It's going there. Or Larry Bird, you know, in whatever playoff game going, okay, I'm going to take the ball. I'm going to go here. I'm going to hit that shot over here. Those are the best. And with, I was, they doubted me on Pooh. I was brought in and they thought I was too dark for it. And so I had a three-day weekend to develop the entire show. Mm. And when I got it done, I bet the head of TV that we would win the Emmy, the Humanitas, and be number one in our time slot. I bet him a whole year's salary, and he wouldn't do it. He goes, oh, we don't do that. He thought I was joking. I'm like, no, I swear. And it was because it was poo. Like, if we didn't mess it up, we were going to win something. You know, so that's kind of the way that went. Was that the first time that they had rebooted that as a series or had it yep. already? Yeah. Yeah. It had never been considered. And so when they handed it to us, it was like, well, it's beautifully designed. The stories are, you know, we didn't use the old stories, but the idea of the stories were wonderful. Uh, and so, and we did, we won all three of that. We did all three of that in the first year. And the next year we won another uh, Emmy after that. Excellent. So very lucky. Uh, since then, Pooh has had so many iterations, it's hard to count. It's like Batman. Uh, I actually worked on one of the, uh, I think it was my friends, Tigger and Pooh, the 3D version. Right. And uh, there have been feature films, and it's just endless now what they're going to do to exploit that thing. And no residuals. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so at some point, uh, we were up in Iceland, and we were working on the series and it became obvious to me that the workload was just uh, too gargantuan for one person. And so we decided we needed to bring another writer up. And agencies, we solicited resumes from lots of different places, people we knew, you know, friends of friends. And uh, your resume really jumped out because it, it was not only just the sheer number of shows you worked on and the episodes you've written, but it was the breadth of it all. And that told me that you were somebody who had worked with lots of different studios, lots of different producers, directors, production teams. Uh, nobody gets through those kinds of encounters unscathed. And so because the production of Lazy Town was uh, specific to its creator, Magnus, 
Um, and it was unlike anything I'd ever worked on before, the demands of the job and the creative demands. Um, I remember we called you in Los Angeles and we had a conversation about what the job would entail and what it would require. And I think the idea of going to Iceland kind of blew your mind, if I'm not mistaken. Um, as it did I, the Americans <laughs> out there. Yeah, I don't remember the conversation, but but I always wanted to travel for work. Uh, I had been to Barcelona a couple of times on one project. Prior to that, I thought this is the way I always thought my life would be, you know, as you fly off somewhere and you shoot something or you write something, you do whatever. So it probably blew my mind, but it was also really amazing. You know, I, I wasn't going to miss that opportunity. Sure. You know, if possible. One of the most familiar um, moments of any American's life when they come to Iceland is when you land at that airport, Keflavik airport, and you've got to drive into town or take a bus into town, which is, takes about 45 minutes. And generally you're arriving early in the morning and in the winter months, it's dark. And all you can really see on either side are the lava fields that look like the Martian landscape. And so there's a sort of feeling of unreality by the time you get to the, your hotel, you might be asking yourself, what have I gotten myself into? But do you remember anything much about that, those first few weeks? It was light because I think I came in the spring and I remember the drive-in and I remember it is a unworld, non-world, there's a word for it. it it's, it's an alien landscape and it's so beautiful. And I remember the drive all the way in. I remember the, I think it was, it, I was first at a little hotel. I remember the, what it looked like. I can't, I think it was like near a bar downstairs or something. Was the, uh, and I was like, Fran. it was which? The hotel front on, on like, Oh, okay. Yeah, that was it. That was it. And it was like, they're putting me up here. This is great. And it was right there uh, in Reykjavik and all the little shops, all the little, it was like, it was a dream come true in a lot of ways. Yeah. So keep going. Sorry. And so, uh, so we, once we got you acclimated to the time difference, um, we brought you into the studio, which was a, a big sound stage in the middle of a lava field up in Garda Bay. And uh, we gave you the office and we basically just said, welcome to the madness. You're about to experience something like you've never experienced before. And that included meeting the show's creator, Magnus, um, and listening to the way he thought about the stories and the things he wanted done. We immediately started working with storyboard artists. Um, do you remember your first... Uh, your first working days there or was that all kind of a blur? Yeah, I know it's partially a blur, but we were in the bullpen, right? There was that area where it was all open and we were all at our desks and stuff like that. We had our laptops. Now, I remember one of the first things I had to go in to see Magnus and somebody else who shall remain nameless and that somebody else ripped me a new one out of the blue. Like, this is terrible. I could do this is terrible. This is this, 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 and this. And Magnus was nice about the whole thing. And I just remember, because this is, if you want to survive in holiday, I just, you know, nodded, accepted it, took my notes, walked on. And I don't think he was actually giving me notes. I think he was just objecting to stuff in the script. But mm. that was one of my first experiences. Magnus was nice about the whole thing. You know, he, he never said a bad, I never had, 
that kind of stuff ever from Magnus. He had very particular ideas and I didn't always agree with him, but, but he was always professional about that sort of, it was never like, this is total crap or something, unless it was a Magnusism, you know, (laughs) which is not. I had an occasion to, I think it was before you came up, there was another producer that was on board from Canada and she had some very specific ideas about the scripts and uh, she felt things were going in the wrong direction. And I felt confident in what we were creating because they were coming directly from the creator of the show. And he had a very specific vision of what he wanted. So I remember, uh, you know, he was always, he, he defended the writing teams uh, mm-hmm. frequently against, because, you know, he, he was aware of the fact that we were there to, take his vision and put it on paper so that other people could enact his vision. And we went to dinner with this producer and I think she sort of didn't see this coming because she started complaining about the scripts and how horrible they were. And he was just sitting there quietly, you know, we were just sort of letting her unreal this whole diatribe. And then he let her have it. And it was just this sort of, it was a sight to behold, you know, uh, they're, the writers are doing what I want them to do. And what you're asking for is not something that I want to see on my show that I created in my studio that I built. <laughs> and and I think uh, within 72 hours, she was back in Canada. So he was always very good about protecting the, uh, the writers because he understood on a very fundamental level that, you know, it's one thing for him to come up with ideas, but it was quite another thing to have somebody who, understood the craft of taking those ideas and putting them on paper so they could act as a blueprint for the entire production. And uh, boy, did we need those. Yeah, no, he, he, he may have been the most single-minded uh, tour I've ever worked with as far as what he wanted. Not from, I mean, not, I've had some directors who are tough, but I mean, in just saying, here's the writing I want. And, and you really... Being a professional, you got to check your ego in situations like that um, because you're not doing a service to your client, which to me was him, uh, if you don't. Uh, and it was that that's can be brutal because you're really like you're, you're trying to get what he says, but you also want to bring some of yourself to it because you don't want to just be a secretary. And that could be a mistake if you don't get it in line. And he's very specific. I mean, it was like, you know, you kind of have to like get some spinal fluid from him and inject it in yourself a little bit because he, it really, that was the toughest part of the whole thing uh, was just trying to stay in line and bring more to it. that still stayed in line. Uh, and it's not a bad thing. It's just very specific and that's kind of cool. And it is what it is because of him. Yeah. It was unusual in the, you know, when you're usually working on a show, you get, of course we did get notes from Nickelodeon we got notes from the producers or the, you know, the prop makers, um, particularly the prop makers who would say, if you're going to require us to build a steam shovel or a cannon, you need to give us more lead time than three days. And that just wasn't always possible because, uh, you know, we would get these requirements to say, we, we need a, we need a castle and we're going to shoot this next week. And so, you know, somebody has to run down to the prop shop immediately and say, we're going to need a castle and you need to start, you know, making schedules right now. And, and they always came through for us. 
Oh, it was a great, it is, it was probably the most insane shoots whole thing from a creative standpoint I've ever been on. I've been on some chaotic ones that were from stupidity, you know, but this was like, Magnus was going to see this vision through and it was going to get done. Yeah. You know, and, and we, everybody on it was great. I, I, amazing group. I mean, truly amazing from the puppeteers. I mean, everybody was, was, I mean, it was 24 seven almost. Yeah. Practically. I mean, because it was more than just, uh, you know, leave your home and go to work, spend a few hours there and go home again. No, this was up early, uh, working from, you know, 7 a.m., round the clock, shooting all day. And then at the end of the day, at the end of the day, then was the, the, we, the real work would begin, yep. at maybe 8 <laughs> o'clock. And then we would maybe have a slice of pizza while we were working with storyboards or, you know, watching animatics or trying to figure out what the next day. And, and frequently, we wouldn't get home until 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. And that happened a lot. And it wasn't just that either. It was, you know, because there were so many people from around the world up there from different cultures and countries. Uh, you know, we suddenly found ourselves creating like a little micro family up there. Um, you know, it's almost like being in the army. You leave your family, your friends, your home, you travel to this far distant place and you are working with a couple of dozen people that are also from someplace else. And uh, you find yourself eating dinners, going away for weekends, maybe watching a movie with people. And yeah, it was a very unique situation. It was, it really was like being in the army in that respect. Not, I don't want military people to get on the case. It's not like that. But, but I, I don't really take any vacation in a way. And it was, and I like that. I love being on set. I, I, there's just something, first time I ever stepped foot on a shoot, I was like home. It was like something from a previous life. But it was like they had the greatest coffee in Iceland and they had a great automatic cappuccino espresso machine there. So you get, and they had good food, you know? So you go in and you grab as much food. I mean, it really was, it was okay. I mean, we were living there in a weird way. And I think you and I as writers, even more so like we'd go to Copenhagen. How cool. Let's Magnus would be like, let's have a writer's retreat. We need to write some stuff. We'll go to, where are we going? Copenhagen. We jumped on a plane. We went to a hotel. We hung out. Then we worked. You know, it was like, yeah, this is a great way to write. <laughs> I don't need to go home. Yeah. Over you know, the course was, of uh, several years, I, through Lazy Town, I had been to London. I had been to uh, uh, Tenerife Islands. I was in oh. Frankfurt, Germany. I was in we flew to Beverly Hills. We were in Cancun. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and by the way, we made, uh, you know, 100 episodes of a show. But it, again, it takes it from Magnus because it was his life. I remember, and this is a disagreement I will always have with him, not in a bad way, but in a, he believes that we all have one great idea. And that's how he ran this whole show because this was his... I mean, he had it on stage beforehand. He has book, you know, and I, I respect that, you know, because it's, it's expanding and extrapolating upon something that is your life's work. 
Now I'm, you know, I go from project to project, I'll write novels, I'll do whatever. So to me to think that way is, is alien, yeah. you know, yeah. but, but, but I, but he, living that way is, is a beautiful thing, you know, alien to me, but I, I look at it, and I go, it is kind of cool. And so the place was run again. You talk about Kobe Bryant. It's like, he worked harder than everybody and he was a superstar. He could have been lazy. He didn't. Magnus worked harder than anybody, you know? I wanted so, to get into that because, uh, you know, we've been around the block. We've been working in this industry for decades. We've worked hard. We've worked lazy. You know, we've done good work. We've done okay work. But I've never been pushed as hard as I was when we were up there because that first year we did 35 shows, most of which contained action sequences, music montages, um, puppets, green screen, um, the, the full catastrophe. And somehow we pulled that off in one year, which is incredible. I think it's because also everybody had multiple hats on. You know, I mean, as writers, I did more sort of directing, discussing, all that kind of stuff than I would on any other project, unless I were a director or a producer or something as well. I mean, I got to do storyboards for the only time in my life on one <laughs> sequence. Yeah, which that. For, yeah. And it was like, and which got over a personal trauma for me, which was kind of cool. But, uh, but I mean, and we were down with the effects people all the time. We were going to the puppeteers. And I mean, we were really were like semi directors at times in communicating to everybody. Yeah, Which I don't is, remember. I, there were only a few instances where we would we would come up with an idea. We would brainstorm. You and I would sit separately from everyone else, and you know what can we do? And we come up with something, but then we would realize we better go ask if yep. this is possible. So, and that, that's very rare. You know, a lot of times, but we were so friendly with everybody, and and everybody was sort of on the team, had that team spirit that you could go to Snorri and say. Uh, Hey, is this even possible? Can we do this? And most often the answer was absolutely. Wish you would have given me more time, but yes, we can do this. <laughs> yeah, it's that whole you don't know any better because you've never done it before. Because that was the whole feel for the place. Uh, and it was beautifully realized that studio. I mean, that was all cutting edge. That was like as good a studio as I've ever been in. Yeah. You know, they had the, everything. The look of the show is beautiful still, the HD. Oh, yeah. Um, just practically speaking, I remember we shared a car. We we shared what I call the clown car because it had yep. <laughs> uh, artwork from Lazy Town on the side of it. So Reykjavik is a small city. So anywhere you went in town, it had that cartoon from Lazy Town on it. So people knew who we were everywhere we went. And I remember uh, we would trade off picking each other up in the morning on some of those bitterly cold Iceland mornings when the wind is howling and it's 20 below and that didn't happen very often but it was still uh, it was still kind of a memorable way to exist well as they'll tell you it's not as cold as boston that's always the uh, icelanders response to that i never I, I never found it too too bad uh because we were just we went from our apartments to the car from the car to the studio from the studio to the car to the so we really weren't like standing out in the freezing weather for more than 10 seconds. So there were occasions um, when people would encourage us. There were some weekend hikes, which oh. <laughs> I never took part in those. Or sometimes there would be exercises in the afternoon after lunch. 
everyone would get together and do gymnastics or something. And I always tried to make myself scarce during those times. We were good in the Olympics, though. We surprised a lot of people, our team. Oh, we did. The Blue Sharks. <laughs> you remember the name. That's great. I'll have to post pictures of that somewhere on this uh, when we get these up and running. A lot of the things that we created have become fan favorites. And it's really gratifying that it's kind of an unusual show. There are a lot of shows out there that become kind of cult hits. And I wouldn't call Lazy Town necessarily a cult hit um, because it we opened at number one. We stayed there for a long time. and But it's a show that people remember with a lot of fondness. And a lot of it is because of Stephen Carl, who mm-hmm. fortunately passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, people just loved the way he played Robbie Rotten. And of course, when he was in, uh, when he was dying, when he had gotten his cancer diagnosis, uh, people took him under their wings into their hearts. And, you know, we had a fundraiser and he became international memes. And it was just a really, uh, it was a lovely kind of farewell for him and kind of singular in the history of the internet. You know, usually you put something up there like that and people take, shoot arrows at you and lots of barbs and, and people were just generally sweet to him because of the way they loved the character that he, he portrayed. And I want to make sure that people know that when we were up there in Iceland and we were away from our families, Stefan and Stan and his wife were always great about inviting us to their home, you know, come over for a meal, let's come over, watch TV or just, you know, hang out. And it was a, a little bit of family in the midst of all that work. Oh, they, they were the best. And I had my son Cole up there a few times. In fact, I put him into school for a while over the winter at one point. And they would have us over. They, they you know, kids would play together. I mean, they, they were just menches, <laughs> for lack of a better word. They were so sweet to me and him. And, and, and yeah, uh, my heart went out when that happened. And, and I think he was the linchpin to the series. As far as I, I think he was the most unique defining thing. I mean, Magnus was the eye candy, you know, <laughs> we had the kid, you know, all that kind of stuff with the purple hair, you know, so that's, that's cool. But, but he was definitely the strength of that, of the show. I think I, uh, I there was, really agree. I, I, I've asked fans, you know, if you really want to see, artistry in action just take almost any scene that he's in and slow it down to slow motion and just look over the course of maybe five seconds all the moves he makes it's almost like a ballet but it's all it's funny it i really believe that if he had lived he would have uh, you know become one of the all-time great physical comedians and just known worldwide um, as he is to the fans who who loved him, but even beyond Lazy Town and the Grinch, I think people would have really recognized his incredible artistry. And it was oh. a shame, but he left it all here for sure. Oh, he totally did. And and it brings up an interesting point. Although Lazy Town was sort of supposed to be about physical stuff, people don't talk about that. And he was, like you say, amazing. Magnus was. He did something once that blew my brain away, which is you shoot things backwards sometimes to get certain effects and then you roll them the other way. 
I forgot what he was doing with a tennis racket or a ball or something, but I watched him practice for a moment doing something backwards. And then they shot it and he did it the right way. But it was one of those physical moments where you go, humans don't do that that easily. Like I can't walk, you know, I can't like pitch a ball backwards without, it would look funny if you did it, but his was like perfect. Yeah. You know? was and, his movements. So everybody, the, the actors were so physically gifted on it, you know, that, that I think another thing that makes it unique is you don't realize it, but subliminally you go, those people are not quite doing human things. You know, the physical comedy is, is we're not used to it since like silent movie stuff, you know, because people don't do it very well. And interesting uh, too, that after a while we got used to giving uh, Ziggy played by Gumi Thor uh, <laughs> nuance in a piece of dialogue so that you knew that he would be able to sell that with the facial mannerisms, you know, uh, that would always astonish me that, you know, we would say, Ziggy, I don't know. Uh, he looks suspicious. You know, how do you make a puppet look suspicious? <laughs> <laughs> but he would do it. And Jody, you know, with stingy would do this sort of like uh, this when he was, uh, fiercely angry at something, you know, you would believe just the physical mannerisms, you know, you would buy it. All the puppeteers were just incredible. Yeah. And they're crazy to begin with. I love them, but that was my first time really being around puppeteers. I'd sort of crossed paths in passing before that, but not really been, you know, heavy on set, man. I don't know how they do that. Looking into a monitor upside down and getting the nuance they get. And they really, they get into their stuff more than a lot of professionals in Hollywood. You know, they, they live what they do. Yeah. You yeah. Know? That's for sure. It's like a, it's almost like a, a belief system in a way. And when you see those bodies of the, the, uh, I know fans have seen photos of our puppeteers on the ground, body parts intermingling with each other, like this sort of miasma of, you know, uh, Mount Rushmore, but like an orgy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very much. Uh, so and in, and in green, yeah. and in green. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so what are you working on now? I finished up a couple of things, animated things. Anything you can remember what, talk about in public? Uh, one was this little preschool show uh, called Zunicorns, uh, and the other I don't not sure if I'm allowed to talk about because. Uh, it's for a company that's very secretive. Oh. Uh, like you can't say the name of it. It's almost as if they were like a computer company that went into entertainment or something. They kind of treat things like that. Uh, so uh, Disney, huh? Pardon? So it's Disney. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, I'm back to finishing up the rough draft on my next novel. That's kind of what I'm doing right now is living the dream, getting up in the morning and you're a genuine writing. renaissance man is what you are. Yes, I can write. <laughs> That's the one thing. <laughs> can't take that away from you. <laughs> can't do music, can't dance, can't act. But uh, yeah. So big question. If they decided to reboot Lazy Town as a cartoon show, an animated series, would you be interested in working on that? Or do you feel like you've given it all and left it on the floor? If they found a new direction... Like, I'm not sure you could translate, if they translated it correctly, 
Mm-hmm. You know, like if they found where that medium worked for it, I would love to. But it's it's if it just was trying to be an animated copy of it, I don't think it would work. No, I, I you know, agree. Least, yeah. There are so many elements that could pivot and tangent off into very fascinating. Yeah, I would love to see a Robbie Rotten spinoff. Just right. See what his world was like or take Sporticus out into the, the cosmos or something. You know, there's. There's a lot of different ways you could go, but uh, I don't know. So far, they're just sitting on it. Nobody's moving, making a move. If they got some good designers and designed it graphically, like the show, you know, as unique as the show was, it could be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I know there are a lot of fans out there that, I mean, thus the reason we're doing the podcast is because there's been such a strong interest through the years that has really never waned for those, the, key fans that just love the show. So I know that the fans will be very glad to hear you describe your journey up in Iceland and through Lazy Town. So really appreciate you taking the time. And we look forward to seeing what comes from Mark Zaslov next. Well, thank you. And thank you again. One thing I wanted to say is, is you took me under your wing when I got up there. I would have been completely lost and clueless. And you, you were super helpful. There was a lot going on and it was complicated up there. And, and you were just, you were, you were a friend and a, and a mentor, you know, during that whole thing that I greatly appreciate. I couldn't have gotten through it without you. So well, my pleasure to be on this and thank you. Thank you, Mark, for saying that. Appreciate it. All right, everybody. Uh, that's, that's the interview with Mark Zaslov. Um, check out his website. Uh, what's the, what's the uh, URL? Oh, I think it's uh, Mark Zaslav, M-A-R-K-Z-A-S-L-O-V-E dot com. You get my author's page. Stay up with everything that Mark's doing next, and uh, we'll be seeing you next time. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Lazy Pod podcast. In future episodes, we'll go behind the scenes with stories about how the scripts were brainstormed and written, We'll talk with the actors and crew members, and we'll have special episodes on the songs, the action sequences, the sets and props, and the studio itself. Make sure you go to bed by 8.08, and remember, there's always a way. The Lazy Pod Podcast.